atheists, agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Northern Kentucky University political scientist Michael Baranowski. In the interview you're about to hear, David Stockman makes what I believe to be a compelling argument against Donald Trump from an economic conservative standpoint. As part of that argument, Mr. Stockman claims that President Trump's response to the pandemic was wildly excessive because Mr. Stockman holds the view that COVID wasn't nearly as serious of a public health crisis as most people believe. Now, in making that particular argument, he referenced some data that at the time seemed odd to me. And because we were in the middle of an interview, I wasn't able to just stop and pull up data on mortality rates during COVID to more fully consider what he was saying. But after the interview, I did just that. And I've come to the conclusion that this particular argument of Mr. Stockman's is, at best, misleading. I've added a short audio appendix, I guess you could call it, at the end of the interview where I explain why I believe this to be the case. And now, here's my interview with David Stockman. My guest today is David Stockman, a legendary figure in Republican circles. He's served as a member of the House of Representatives, budget director in the Reagan White House, a partner in the private equity company, the Blackstone Group, and he's the author of many books, the latest of which is Trump's War on Capitalism, which we'll be discussing today. David Stockman, welcome to the show. Very happy to be with you, and we got some good topics to cover here. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, your book is really an extended critique of Donald Trump, but I want to point out that you actually start out with a compliment. You write, his one abiding virtue is that he has all the right enemies. And I wanted to start with that compliment because we're still going to get to the critique. So who are these enemies and why do you think they're the right ones to have? Well, you know, uh, the enemies I'm speaking of here have many names, the establishment, the deep state, the Washington political class, the mainstream media. I think the gist of it is the position, uh, the policy and political perspective of the New York Times, of CNN, of the Washington Post, uh, of, you know, the mainstream leadership of what I call the uniparty, which is both parties in Washington. Trump was an outsider. He rejected, at least rhetorically, um, the uh, status quo policy. That turned uh, much of the establishment against him. And, you know, that's where we entered the scene in 2017. The whole thrust of my book is that he started with the right enemies, He could have, you know, made some headway draining the swamp, but he actually made it worse because all of his policies were either wrong or counterproductive. Uh, He was the biggest spender ever to enter the White House, Republican or Democrat. To give one thing and then we can go into the critique more. Uh, But the ultimate metric of fiscal responsibility is the public debt. And if the public debt's going up by, huge amounts. That's an indication for policy. Now, Trump inherited a $20 trillion public debt. That was bad enough. It had been building president after president, both parties, for several decades. When he left, it was $28 trillion, nearly. Now, that's an $8 trillion gain in four years. And so in the book, I ask, $8 trillion, a big number, a humongous number, what does it mean? Well, one way to look at it is the first $8 trillion of public debt in the United States was not accrued until the year 2005, which meant it took us 216 years of the country's, the republic's history to get there in 43 presidents. And Donald Trump uh, was able to equal that $8 trillion just in four years. So that's a measure of the fact that he wasn't a conservative economically in any way, shape, or form, that he basically violated what had been the core principle of the Republican Party ever since I went to Washington in 1970 as a young staffer, and that was fiscal responsibility, fiscal rectitude, 
holding down the public uh, debt to the maximum degree possible. He didn't do any of that. He cut taxes, sure, but he didn't make any effort to pay for them, pay for those revenue losses. It was $1.5 trillion over 10 years. He went totally bonkers, and we'll get into that after the lockdowns, which he ordered with all of the uh, COVID relief measures, which just caused spending uh, and handouts and freebies, as I call them, to soar. So these these are some of the things that we get into once we get over the fact that he had the right enemies and he blew the opportunity to do something about the status quo, something about the swamp, something about the deep state. He didn't do anything at all, in my judgment. Yeah, and that debt number certainly is scary to anyone. I, well, anyone who's not a modern monetary theory person, I guess. But, I, you know, Donald Trump consistently has claimed that he is responsible for the greatest economy ever. And that, of course, should be all caps uh, being Trumpian. What do you what do you sense his basing that on? And what's your aside from the debt, which is a huge issue to put aside, but let's do that. What, what do you think about that Trumpian boast? Well, it was a boast based on a stock market that had already reached bubble proportions when he was sworn in in January 2017. And the Fed, uh, under his uh, prodding and uh, constant pressure, continued to uh, flood the Wall Street, the canyons of Wall Street, with cheap credit and massively excess liquidity. So the stock market kept going up, at least until March 2020. And so he took the stock market's rise, which I think was entirely a monetary phenomenon, unsustainable, a bubble driven by rogue central bank, the Fed that was out of control. He took that as evidence of the greatest economy ever. Well, in my book, I have a whole chapter which says there was no MAGA economy that set any kind of record at all, except if you want to look at performance of the economy during a president's term, and it's a little arbitrary because four years of a term in the White House really doesn't match up very well with business cycles and long-term trends like demographic trends or, you know, impacts from external events like wars and crises and, and other things that happen all over the world. So, you know, it's, uh, you have to use some caution. Nevertheless, I went back to every presidential term, including some where the should put two of them together, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, Ford, it was the same policy. But if you go back to Harry Truman and you look at every presidential term and you look at economic growth, real per capita income, the growth rate of productivity, which is essential if you're going to have real you know, prosperity and rising living standards, if you look at investment rates on all of these metrics, Trump job creation, obviously, which he talked about a lot. Trump came out at the bottom of the league table, not the top. The Trump economy, the four years, was actually the worst on an overall basis of any presidential term since Harry Truman, not the best. In terms of numbers, we can. there's a lot of them in my book, but a couple of them stand out. If you just look at overall aggregate economic growth, and that's real... I, I use real uh, saving, real spending, but it's very similar to GDP, except it doesn't have uh, inventory swings in it. It's, it's better number. But in any event, the average for all presidents since Truman was 3.04% per year. Three, I just put that sort of uh, on the table. That's kind of the norm. It's, you know, over, over, occurred over a half century. 11 presidents or nine presidents, 11 business cycles. There was, you know, it is kind of the benchmark. Uh, and it was 3.04%. During Trump's four years, it was 1.52%, half, only a half of the historic norm. Other, you know, during Reagan, when I was there, it was 3.5%. During Kennedy Johnson, it was nearly 5%. Even Obama, the growth rate during Obama's eight years, which included, you know, it included um, 
the Great Recession, or he inherited, was 1.7%. So Trump had the worst growth rate. And you can look at other things like growth in real per capita income, GDP, and you get pretty much the same result. So what I conclude in the book was it wasn't the greatest economy ever. Trump was the greatest boaster ever. That's all. And the reason was it, you know, going into all this detail, and we only scratched the surface here, because I was trying to prove, well, uh, Trump was a liar, or he was an exaggerator or boaster. I I think people kind of know that. I, I was addressing that because I hear from a lot of Republicans and conservatives that, well, yeah, his uh, personality is pretty obnoxious. Sometimes he can be, you know, a little unhinged and even scary. And his spending, you know, it was uh, over the top. But there was a good, solid, strong economy. And you got to give him the benefit of the doubt. Uh, because of the good uh, MAGA economy. And so I wrote the whole chapter basically to take apart that proposition. And I think if you look at it, and it's, you know, 15 pages or so, I think, it's uh, pretty clear that uh, there was no of greatest economy ever. It's, it's a complete myth. It's uh, pure, you know, Trumpian boasting. Yeah. Well, let me try to make uh, the case, not exactly for Donald Trump, but maybe the case that we're being a little unfair to him. You mentioned uh, some things like the business cycle and there's technology and demographics and that so many things outside of a president's control. And I'm wondering if we're unfairly discrediting Donald Trump for this. Uh, What do you think? I mean, to what extent has the bad what so-called Trump economy been Donald Trump's fault or not, or just the fact, just the result of these other factors that are largely outside of presidential control? Well, it's a good point. All presidents boast about an economy that really they have only modest impact on. The month-to-month, year-to-year, decade-to-decade expansion of our economy is due to capitalism. You know, it's due to millions of workers and thousands and tens of thousands of employers and entrepreneurs and business managers and executives. It's due to savers. It's due to investors. Uh, It's due to inventors. That's what drives the economy. That's, you know, 80 to 90 percent of the story. And on the margin, presidents' policies have modest impact and usually not for the best. So, the reason I criticize Trump, again, is not to prove that he's the worst, is to prove that his claim to re-election, because he had such a great economy, is totally without merit. And that when you're electing a president, you actually should be asking about their policies. And when you look at Trump's policies relative what to what I call, you know, sound conservative economics, which is fiscal accountability, fiscal responsibility. It's sound money, you know, a Federal Reserve that doesn't print money like it's going out of style. It's minimal intervention in the economy, the very opposite of these massive COVID lockdowns of the type that Trump imposed on the economy that is focused on free markets and free trade. Uh, Trump was the very opposite of that. He's, he tried to convince the public that the real economic problems that we have, which I believe have been generated in the swamp in Washington, were due to, you know, nefarious foreigners, uh, people trying to come across the border, the immigrant hordes at the border and goods trying to come across the border through unfair trade. So I spent a good deal of time in the book trying to debunk the border hordes issue and the the trade issue. Yeah, we have a huge trade problem. We shouldn't be running, you know, the size of trade deficits that we are, but it's not mainly due to, you know, malevolent actors abroad. It's mainly due to we've inflated the heck out of our economy and we're not competitive as a result of all that inflation that the Fed and Washington has created. And as a result, we import way too much. 
We're not competitive and we don't export enough. Now, you solve that problem by getting inflation under control and getting the government out of the economy. You don't solve it by putting on uh, these massive tariffs, the Trump tariffs, which basically aren't hurting China. The Trump tariffs are tax consumers. And uh, it's, by my judgment, and we could talk about this more, it's something like $150 billion a year of higher costs coming right out of the pocket of hard-pressed consumers who are already suffering from this high inflation that uh, is a result of the Trump tariffs that, you know, even Biden has yet to lift and, and should have. Now, some people in response to that might say, well, okay, sure, maybe prices are a little bit higher, but we save American jobs. I don't get the sense that you buy that argument either. No, I don't, because the economy is a lot more complex than that. And when you raise the internal inflation rate, what you do then is create, you trigger another round of adjustments, which force businesses to raise wage, workers want to raise their wages. Businesses have higher costs. They need to raise their prices. You get an inflationary spiral underway. And in, in the long run, it undermines jobs rather than helps them. The, the best way, the best route to prosperity is free markets. Let the people decide where their capital is going, where they're going to buy their goods, source their goods. But you can't have tariffs standing in the way, and you can't have a central bank printing so much money that it's inflating the U.S. economy to a terrible disadvantage vis-a-vis the rest of the world. Do you have any sympathy for the argument, I guess I'll call it the fairness argument on trade, that, yeah, okay, I'm for fair, I'm for free trade, but it needs to be fair trade. And when you have China putting in their own internal barriers, making it hard for U.S. businesses to actually do business in China, billions of dollars in intellectual property theft, I mean, massive state subsidies that seem to be violating international trade agreements in a bunch of ways. I mean, you look at all that. And a lot of people say, hey, if they're, if they're not going to fight fair, if they're going to trade fair, why should we? Well, you know, I, that argument I've been hearing ever since I started working on Capitol Hill in 1970 when uh, Nixon actually put a surtax on foreign trade. And there was a saying once that I think is pretty good, and that is, if someone else is stupid enough to fill up their harbors with rocks to keep foreign ships and trade uh, out of their country. Should we be uh, do the same and fill up our harbor with rocks? I mean, you know, it doesn't make any Fair trade has nothing to do with it. What we want is economic trade. And if other people are dumb enough to subsidize their exports to us, it's the same thing as sending foreign trade, uh, foreign aid to the United States. <laughs> you know, I guess we take it if it if they're dumb enough to offer it. Besides that, when you get into this whole fair trade thing, we have as many tax subsidies and back energy subsidies and farm subsidies and other interferences with pure uh, market operations as almost any other country in the world. So, you know, when you live in a glass house, you know what the saying is. So you don't throw stones. And um, I think that's really the answer. What we need to do is encourage the rest of the world uh, to be, to have more open trade. But in the process, going protectionist doesn't uh, help us at all. What we need to do is encourage more investment and less speculation in the stock market. We need to have a deflation of our hugely inflated uh, cost structure. And those policies are sort of fixing our own problems and becoming more competitive. I want to get a lot more into the Fed and inflation, those kind of deeper drivers of the economy. Before I do, something I wanted to ask you that I, I didn't want to forget is because in going back to Donald Trump's overall economic record, I could hear some people saying, well, yeah, but you can't really look at Donald Trump's entire term because COVID was, and we'll get to COVID, was such an unusual event that 
let's just take a look at the pre-COVID Trump economy of 2017 through early 2020. And they would say, I bet if you look at that, Donald Trump actually comes out pretty good. And I just wonder if you have any thoughts on, on that. Well, yeah, I mean, you can do that. You can say, well, somehow the world ended in February 2020 before the lockdowns, before the COVID. And you can look at the data. And frankly, I can go through some of it here, but it still comes out very near the bottom. You know, real growth, for instance, was only 2.1 percent during that period. A couple presidents were lower than that, but almost all of them were well above it. And again, 2.1 percent is only two thirds of the post-war norm, which is about 3%. But there's a bigger, you know, issue answer here, and that is what I call the Harry Truman standard. And, of course, he famously had a plaque on his desk that said the buck stops here. And the fact is COVID, did the virus didn't cause all of this mayhem in the U.S. economy and the huge uh, crash in the spring of 2020 and soaring unemployment and so forth. That was caused by the lockdowns. That was caused by the declaration of national emergency on March 13th declared by Donald Trump. That was caused by the White House task force led by Fauci and Dr. Burke and all the rest of the malpracticing doctors with Donald Trump's complete blessing that occurred day after day and scared the living daylights out of the American people. And as a result, they hunkered down. <laughs> Even if uh, they could go out, they, they didn't. And so uh, schools uh, shut down, jobs shut down, malls shut down, restaurants shut down. They couldn't even go to the gym. And those are the healthy people of the country. So all of that was basically on Donald Trump's watch, because if he had any kind, if he would have had any kind of decent Republican conservative economic principles, he would know that you don't just arbitrarily take people's property by telling them their business is closed and they're going to lose their shirt. They're going to go out of business. They're going to go bankrupt like millions of small businesses did. You can't do that. You can't, you know, interfere in such a heavy handed way with the free market as the uh, lockdowns. And all, you know, closing the restaurants, closing the bars, closing the gyms, all the rest of it did. He was behind all that. And, and as I say, maybe he didn't think it through. Well, when you get the big job, you're, part of your, your role is to think it through. And part of your role is to have good advisors. And Trump was listening to these government doctors who saw a chance to become, you know, the big man on campus for a while and throw their weight around and get on TV every night and become famous. But there were plenty of other scientists around and plenty of other very astute, experienced medical people who said, we don't need the lockdown. And further, they said, this is kind of, you know, an unfortunate virus that has come along, but it is not the Black Plague. It is not going to cause mayhem uh, medically, health-wise, to the U.S. population, and that we need to have a very targeted, this was the great Barrington statement, we need to have a very targeted uh, policy on the small share of the population that is by virtue of age or comorbidity especially vulnerable to this type of virus and help them, but not one size fits all and not this sweeping lockdown that really knocked the stuffings right out of the economy for a couple of quarters and then set in motion all of these massive spending bills, money printing by the Fed, the inflation that resulted, and all of the problems that we're dealing with downstream from from that huge mistake. Uh, so it's it's really, uh, and, and the, the point that I'm making in the book uh, is that this is an unforgivable error, okay? This is an unpardonable sin. Uh, that whole uh, COVID lockdown, stim bailout, uh, you know, COVID relief spending that was $6.5 trillion 
almost uh, overnight, within 12 months. That whole complex of things was so detrimental uh, and is going to have such a lasting negative legacy that the author, the ultimate author of that, which was President Trump, bears the responsibility and thereby forfeits, you know, any chance to go back in the Oval Office because he doesn't have any principles. That's the dangerous thing about Donald Trump. He's utterly unpredictable. He has no policy compass. He has no principles. He flies by the seat of his ample britches. And you never know uh, which side of bed he's going to wake up on and decide, you know, policy out of the blue, like like he did in the spring of 2020. So he, he, he got the test and he failed it miserably. And it's unfortunate that we're at the point now where, you know, he has a lock on the nomination, obviously, and there's a grave danger that he'll be reelected. I think a lot of people in hearing your comments about the response to COVID would say, but my God, we had over a million dead, over close to 7 million hospitalized. I mean, this was a, a totally novel and, and calamitous public health emergency. And so... Didn't it make sense, given the fact that the science evolved over time, and that's not a time to take sort of a measured, careful approach, but to do as much as possible to save people's lives because you can always make more money, but debt is dead. I mean, what do you say to people who respond in that way? Because I'm sure you've heard that argument. Oh, sure. And, you know, um, we, we, we could go into a lot of facts that kind of refute the notion that this was anything faintly resembling the Black Plague. The death count that they put out is mainly because they changed the certification process, the CDC did, in March 2020. So they were counting a lot of deaths that basically were coincident to COVID, but not caused by COVID. I mean, the fact is there were, you know, if you were in a motorcycle crash and you arrived at the hospital DOA, you had tested positive, you were a COVID death, okay? And you can and there's a lot of people who were in their advanced years, over half of the deaths were over 80 anyway, that had other comorbidities. And it's you know a complicated medical question as to whether it was the underlying condition or whether it was COVID that made the difference. But in any event of that number, I just don't put much stark, uh, much stock in these death counts. But what I, because I know it was entirely a bureaucratic uh, uh, scam, really. But what I really think does not lie is the age-adjusted mortality rate for the U.S. population. Um, you know, by that I'm talking about here mortality from all causes. <laughs> you know. Yeah, homicide, uh, cancer, COVID, car crashes, etc. If you look at the mortality rate from all causes and you put it on an age-adjusted basis, because as the population gets over, uh, older, obviously the mortality rate goes up. But if you look at that, I would ask the listener to think back if they can. A lot of them, some are younger. But if you think back to 1990, you ask, was that really a terrible time in America where uh, people were dropping like flies because there was a high uh, death rate? Think back to 2003. Did that seem like a bad time in America because uh, of a surge in deaths and mortality? Well, I'm raising this because here are the three numbers that put this whole damn thing to rest. The age-adjusted mortality rate in 1990 per 100,000 in the United States was 930. By 2003, the age-adjusted mortality rate per 100,000 was 844. And in 2020, the year of COVID, the year that the media couldn't stop showing all these terrible things happening in New York City hospitals and elsewhere, uh, and you had the whole lockdown and pandemic uh, crisis, the age-adjusted mortality rate in the U.S. was 829. 
In other words, it was 2% lower than it had been in 2003 and 11% lower than it had been in 1990. So, yes, there were deaths, but they were just shuffling around the way that they count, the or for the most part, the ordinary deaths that were occurring. And they used that to scare the living hell out of the American people and to justify all of this insanity that happened in the name of you know, fighting the COVID. And, of course, I should point out that this was not right all Donald Trump. Congress did a lot. The Fed did a lot. And so there's in this in this telling of it, there's plenty of blame to go around. But I guess you would go back to the Truman Doctrine saying that, well, the buck stops with Donald Trump. I would go back to the Truman Doctrine, but especially it's fitting for Donald Trump because Donald Trump clearly has the most humongous, gigantic ego that ever sat upon, you know, most people that I've encountered in my lifetime, and, and certainly even the ego-driven politicians who seem to rise to the top here and a lot of other places, too. So from his perspective, it's all about the president. It's all about the great man sitting in the Oval Office. And so, therefore, that's the view of the world that he brings. I think it's a pretty dangerous, I call it a Caesarist view, you know, the great uh, Caesar that will save the people. It's a, a dangerous thing in a democracy. It's a dangerous threat to liberty and free enterprise. But that's the view that he brings to the table. So I think the Truman Doctrine about where the buck stops flies, oh, especially strongly to Donald Trump. And when you do that, he has an awful lot to answer for. I want to move off of COVID and onto a different argument you make in the book. One that I found really interesting is that you write the financial crisis of 2008 never really went away. And, and I had to think about that for a while. And so I, I did what I often do in these cases. I go to the, the St. Louis Fed's awesome data source, which you use as well in the book plenty of times. Uh, and I looked at real GDP and sure enough, there's this big dip during the financial crisis, but it sure looks to me like the timeline more or less resumes the pre-crisis you know, trend. And I also looked at like, for instance, S&P 500 historical charts and yeah, there's the dip, but again, you see solid growth after that. And so at least according to those two indicators, it just seemed like, yeah, we got back on track after a few rough years. But you argue that there's a lot deeper th sort of things going on there. And I just wonder if you could sort of explain in, in brief what that argument is. Well, the, the underlying argument is that between 2007 and 2017, when Trump came in and then he continued the policy, we have we had a false economy a falsified economy that was being injected with continuous massive amounts of fiscal and monetary stimulus that were not sustainable. And so therefore, the economy was not nearly as prosperous or strong as it appeared. And that sooner or later, you know, the chickens would come home to roost. The uh, day of reckoning would arrive and we would find out that we were kind of living in a fanciful, you know, world, fantasy world. Now, besides that, and I can talk to, to some of the specific, uh, you know, evidence for that. The one thing that you can look at, remember when you talk about GDP, that's a lot of spending that some of it comes directly out of the government budget. And a lot of it comes into these economy into the main spending stream as a result of transfer payments. You know, the transfer payment level today in our economy is was at the time of the COVID on the eve, eve of the COVID was $3.1 That's a lot of money coming out of the government uh, uh, sluice gates, I would say, that goes into the GDP. So I think there's some questions about using GDP as a measure of anything when the government's ballooning, uh, bloating the GDP uh, dramatically as a result of unsustainable monetary and fiscal stimulus. But the one, you know, measure that I look at 
that is not as vulnerable to that is industrial production. Because if you look at it, that's the supply side of the economy. And as you might know, that's what we uh, tried to install way back in the uh, 1980s with Reagan, supply side economics. In other words, it's not spending that drives the economy. It's not the consumer that drives the economy. It's investment, production, labor, input, invention, and so forth, technology on the supply side of the economy. Well, the reason I bring that up is that the industrial production index, excuse me, industrial production index is a pretty pure measure of the supply side. It, It counts all the manufacturing output all of the energy sector output, and that's, you know, mining, coal mining, oil, gas, all the lesser commodities. It includes the entire utility sector, all the electrical power production, all of the natural gas distribution, and so forth. So that, so you look at that, and that's really the production side of the economy. And what are the, what are the figures? What are uh, the facts? Well, in, December 2007, so that would be the peak, the pre-crisis peak that we're talking about before the the, the big uh, great financial crisis and the Great Recession and so forth. But at the pre-crisis peak, the industrial production index posted at 102.3. Now, you may say, well, here we are now. Roughly 16 years later, and we've gone through hell and high water in between, a few presidents, a few crises, a lot of wars, etc. But if we look at December 2023, the latest number available, what is the industrial production in- index? And the answer is 102.4. Okay, it's identical to where it was 16 years ago been ups and downs in between, but industrial production, and this is a physical measure, you know, they're almost, they're counting carloads of coal, they're counting automobiles produced, they're counting tons of steel produced and so forth. So on that core measure of the supply side of the economy, there's been essentially zero change for the last 16 years, but there's been a huge amount of inflation on the spending side and on the transfer payment side and on what goes into, unfortunately, the way they count the GDP statistics. Now, how did we get to a bloated GDP on one side and a flatlining industrial production impact on the supply side? And the answer is, well, if you go back to February, I mean, if you go back to the pre-crisis peak, the total balance sheet of the Fed was about $900 And if you then fast forward, okay, $900 had taken the whole history of the Fed to get there, something like 94 years. If you go, um, if you then fast forward to the peak a few years ago before the Fed finally tried to, you know, put the brakes on inflation a little bit, the balance sheet of the Fed hit $9 trillion, okay? So in that period, and the balance sheet of the Fed is just a measure of how much money they're printing. There's no, you know, there's no economic, you know, mystery or magic about that. It's just they're, they're, every time they print money, their balance sheet gets bigger because they buy up bonds and other securities in the market and uh, fund it with... Uh, Fiat credit. Okay. So during that period, it went up nine, you know, tenfold in a relatively short period of time. Or if we look at the federal deficit, the federal deficit was about 10 trillion on the eve of the financial crisis. And obviously, by the time Trump got to the White House, it was 20 trillion. By the time he left, it was 28. Today, it's 34 trillion. So what what's happened is the federal government has borrowed massive amounts of money that should have choked off the economy because interest rates would have risen investment would have stopped we would have had a pretty severe and long lasting economic uh, setback but the fed stepped in and monetized all the debt it printed the money and kept the bubble going and kept the fantasy going but 
you know, at the end of the day, what causes economic prosperity is the sweat equity of the people, the work, the labor, the invention, the enterprise. And you're not going to print your way to prosperity. You're not going to borrow your way to prosperity. You're only going to create a bloated economy that sooner or later will have to be drastically overhauled. And so I think that's the real answer to the to the question. We didn't really get very far in terms of addressing the fundamental problem, which was too much government debt, too much private debt, and too much money printing by, by the Fed. And, and I can round this off with one more fact that's pretty, uh, pretty startling. I, I really think this present age of what I call bubble finance began with Greenspan when he became Fed chairman in 1987. Uh, and at the time, the total debt of the U.S. economy was about $5 trillion. And, you know, that was 150% of GDP, which was about $3 trillion at the time. And that 150% or so, maybe it was a little higher, it was a longstanding ratio, a kind of leverage ratio that had been in effect for really decades and decades, going back to the uh, prosperity that began in the late uh, 19th century. Well, the reason I'm putting my thumb at $5 trillion is today the total public and private debt of the U.S. Now, we're talking about households, businesses, governments, and financial institutions. That number is $96 trillion today. So it's gone from $5 trillion to $96 trillion. And why did that happen? And the answer is the Fed printed so much money, made interest rates so artificially low for so long that it encouraged all sectors of the economy to borrow hand over fist, not just the government, which was bad enough, uh, but businesses levered up. And we got a lot of data in the book about that. And households as well, you know, households had debt that was maybe 80% of their wage and salary income before Greenspan. And uh, it got to be well over 200% at the peak uh, a little while back. So, again, this is to underscore the fact that, yes, my point in the book is that the crisis was never resolved of what I would call this bloated bubble finance in 207, 208. It was only kicked, the can was only kicked down the road. The policies, effectively, they doubled down on the bad policies that got us to the crisis of 208. So nothing was solved. And the idea that just because you can look at the lines on the chart and see a big dip in winter of 208, 209, and then back to trend, you're not, it's very misleading because the issue is how did you get there and how long can it be sustained and what happens when the bubble finally bursts. And those are not uh, very, you know, the answers to that are not very uh, pleasant. Yeah. And so clearly you believe that Donald Trump absolutely blew it when it comes to fiscal policy. Now, the president's control of monetary policy is is somewhat much more indirect, right, because the Federal Reserve is an independent or largely independent board. But, of course, Donald Trump did make some appointments. Uh, still now, Mickey Bowman and Chris Waller, Trump appointees, are on the board and he also named Jay Powell as chair. Do you feel like Donald Trump uh, missed an opportunity with his appointments to the Fed to maybe change the course of what it was doing on the monetary policy side of things? Yes, yes, yes. Huge. Uh, two points on this. When Trump got into the Oval Office in January 2017, we were already in like the eighth year of economic recovery. So the crisis was way in the rear, rear view mirror, even if you think the crisis was as uh, tremendous as they felt at the time. And I didn't uh, for different reasons. I thought it was a Washington-created problem that should be addressed uh, directly there. But in any event, we were well into what, conventional economists would call mature business cycle. And even historically, the Keynesian 
economists who advised the Democrats and some Republicans as well. Nixon said, remember, we're all Keynesians now. He said that way back in the early 70s. But even they said, when you go through the economic bottom, a contraction, a recession, you know, do all this monetary and fiscal stimulus. But after the recovery is well established and the economy's back on a solid footing and growth track on its own steam, then it's time to normalize policy and get interest rates back up to something that makes sense in terms of return on savings after inflation. Uh, and the government needs to get its fiscal house in order by drastically reducing the deficit and even obtaining a balance or a small surplus if you can. That, that was the historic position. Well, Trump gets in in that position, and, and, and the Fed was tepidly trying to normalize. They did begin raising interest rates almost from the beginning of his term, and they were trying to shrink what they called the this bloated balance sheet with, with QT, quantitative tightening. And almost every other week, he was on their case uh, beating the tom-toms for lower interest rates, easy money. I quote a lot of it in the book where he was basically saying they should be setting interest rates at zero, which is just, you know, economic madness, pure, you know, crank economics. But anyway, he was constantly on their case against normalization, the very thing that even Keynesian economists said we should be doing. And then, you know, there was all the Republican rhetoric uh, going into the 2016 election about the big spending years under Obama and the public debt getting out of control. But the fact is, Obama, and I don't give him much credit, but at least the people running his uh, fiscal policy were kind of following the playbook. Debt or the deficit uh, peaked at about 1.4 trillion in 2009, and by the time Trump arrived, the deficit that year was down to round terms 500 billion. So they had been slowly working it down, trying to normalize, and and on their way back towards balance. So what did Donald Trump do? He 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 turned around and marched in the other direction, and even before COVID, and this is the important point. As a result of his tax cuts and the spending that he didn't really care anything about and defense increases, which were huge uh, during that period, by fiscal 2019, so this is pre-COVID entirely, long before the big uh, stimulus, uh, the deficit was back up to $900 billion. That was madness because it was not only a huge number that we're going to have to be financing forever, but it came at a time in the cycle where almost any economist, left or right, Keynesian or non-Keynesian, would have said we need to get the fiscal house in order, and Trump went the other way. And then, of course, it was Katie bar the door when the COVID lockdowns were imposed by the Trump White House, and that $2.1, $2.2 trillion CARES Act was passed in 11 days without any, uh, you know, scrutiny at all and without any mechanisms of control. It's the biggest boondoggle disaster in American history and has created, uh, you know, endless amounts of corruption. But in any event, when you put that in place overnight and then double down in December by passing an extension of all those programs, the 600 a week, you know, unemployment benefit toppers, another round of, you know, checks to 90% of the households, more money for the Paycheck Protection Program, which, was, you know, was a huge uh, uh, pit of corruption. But in any event, that put Together, that added up to six and a half trillion worth of spending, extra spending, COVID recovery within 12 months. It took the deficits to well over three trillion and, uh, you know, ended up, as I think we said before, with eight trillion worth of new debt on the Donald, uh, Donald Trump's watch over four years. It caused the average deficit during Trump's four years to average uh, 9% of GDP, which was about, you know, four times larger than the average over the previous 
decades, which was bad enough. And it was even nearly double the average deficits during Obama's eight years, which, of course, until Trump, uh, were viewed to be uh, the worst, you know, fiscal performance in modern times. So, you know, I think uh, those those points are pretty solidly made in the book. It, it It's really looking like the conservative economic case for Donald Trump is uh, not existed. But let me try one more thing, okay? So I think a lot of conservatives would, maybe even if they agreed with you up until this point and almost everything, would say, yeah, but look at the TCJA, 2017, the largest corporate tax cut in U.S. history, simplified the tax code. That's what we believe in as conservatives. And oh, by the way, plenty of prominent conservatives at the time, including Donald Trump, of course, said this will more than pay for itself and create a more prosperous, productive American economy. What's your take on that? Well, unfortunately, it didn't happen. If you look at the, uh, you know, the investment growth rate, and that is, I mean, business investment, plant equipment and technology, before the five years before the Trump tax cut became effective, that was about 3.14% per annum. And in the five years after the big sweeping Trump tax cut, the growth rate was actually 2.9%. It was actually lower. Now, if you basically add $1.5 trillion to the deficit over 10 years by lowering the corporate tax rate you know, to 21%, and by putting the equivalent of that in the, what the non-corporate payers paid because of the 20% deduction for business investment they were given, and you get no improvement at all, in fact, a slight shrinkage of the growth rate, then the question is, why did you impose another half a trillion or a trillion and a half of debt on the American public to pay debt service on forever if it didn't stimulate any increase in investment, which was the purpose of it? That's the first point. The second point is what it did stimulate was a massive increase in stock buybacks and in other corporate distributions back into the stock market M&A deals, uh, leverage recaps, and so forth. And I point out in the book that if you take the five-year period then, what, the last year of Obama versus uh, the, the first year after Trump, uh, the uh, net worth of the average fam household in the top 1% went up by $9 million. Uh, the average net worth in the bottom 50% of households during that five-year period went up by $1,800, okay? So there was about a 3,000% difference. So, you know, the point was it, you should never cut taxes, in my view, unless you're willing to pay for it the loss of revenue because a tax cut does not pay for itself. That's just a myth. Art Laffer was peddling 40 years ago and still is. They don't pay for themselves. They do help a little, but most of the pay for has to come out of spending cuts. As Eisenhower, who's my really hero, our, one of our best presidents, said, if you're going to have a tax cut, and I agree at the time in the 50s, the rates are way too high because they were put on to fund uh, World War II and the Korean War. Uh, we've got to earn our right to cut taxes by cutting spending first and keeping uh, the budget solvent as we move forward. Now, none of that was even remotely in play when the big Trump tax cut happened. And as a result, I think uh, it, it was nothing, <laughs> nothing to brag about at all. Now, let's say that I think you make some awfully good arguments. And for conservatives who are listening to this, I think one response might be, well, well, damn. But, but after that, I think they might say, well, but what's the alternative? I mean, alluded to earlier, it looks like almost certainly like it's going to be Trump or Biden. And if that's the choice, hey, I'll take the lesser of two evils if I'm a conservative and go ahead and vote for Trump again. Well, the answer is it's never going to change unless the Republican Party 
gets back to its roots, gets back to its core economic principles. So therefore, the worst thing that could happen to the country is that the Republican Party becomes thoroughly Trumpified. It's bad enough the way it is. But four more years of Trump will turn the Republican Party into just another Me Too party when it comes to spending, debt, money printing by the Fed, trade, and, you know, intervention in the private economy. There's nothing to be gained by a Republican in the White House by the name of Donald Trump. And it might be better to lose the election, have the Republican Party, you know, have an internal fight and try to, for the uh, economic conservatives to to regain uh, control and start nominating good people. Like right now, the, the greatest guy we have down there is Rand Paul. He understands every one of these issues that I've been we've been talking about and that are covered in my issue. He should be the nominee, not Donald Trump. And so until we get back to the roots, there's no point in having a Me Too spending party in the White House. That's the first thing. The second thing is the Republican establishment in Washington has basically joined what I call the uniparty. They're more interested in, you know, doing deals with Schumer. That's Mitch McConnell anyway, and the Senate establishment than they are in fighting for the principles that the Republican Party once upon a time stood for economically. So I think uh, the best thing that could happen in 2024 is that the uniparty gets discredited, the Republican Party loses, and there is a new realignment going forward. And that's why I am strongly supportive of Robert Kennedy's candidacy, because I think it's just possible that he could upset the apple cart in a big way, prevent either of those two lame candidates, Biden or Trump, from getting 270 votes in the Electoral College, force the election of the president into the House of Representatives, where they vote by delegation, and hopefully either make a bargain with one of the two to change policy in a big way, and he's for bringing the empire home, drastically slashing the defense budget, and even getting the overall fiscal budget back in order. He's strongly critical of the Fed, which, you know, neither of the uh, uh, candidates are. Trump, of course, is critical because he wants it even easier. But in terms of sound policy, the only candidate on the horizon today addressing the big issues of war and peace and fiscal solvency and, you know, sustainable governance in America is Robert Kennedy. So in other words, you think that Kennedy at least has an outside chance of being a spoiler, but in a, but in a positive way, a way we generally don't think of. Yes, a, a very positive spoiler, one that could break up the uniparty and eventually lead to a realignment of American politics, where you have one party, which is the government party, pretty much like the Democrats are today, the people that want to have wars everywhere in the world, the people that don't mind massive, you know, Leviathan on the Potomac, the people that think, uh, you know, prosperity and human happiness comes from a government program, let them be in one party and let the people that are more interested in peace and liberty and prosperity the, on the capitalist free market side uh, uh, join another. And then you can have real elections and real policy choices in our democratic system. Break up the uniparty. Kind of like that as a slogan. I think I might even buy the T-shirt. I don't know. But okay. <laughs> but, but on that note, I know our, our time is, is to an end. And I just want to say, Mr. Stockman, thank you so much. It has been just a real pleasure talking with you today. Okay. Well, very good. And we certainly covered a lot of really good topics and uh, happy to uh, spend the time with you. Thank you so much. At the beginning of this episode, I mentioned that I had some problems with Mr. Stockman's argument about the seriousness of COVID, or rather the lack of seriousness of COVID. And if you'll recall from the interview that he made the point that, 
Well, if you really want to understand how not big of a deal COVID was, take a look at age-adjusted mortality rate. And he points to two years. He said, look back to 1990. Was that a huge, deadly year? Do you recall it being so awful? Or 2003? And I said, no, in both cases, right? And he said, well, in both of those years, the age-adjusted mortality rate was higher than the COVID year of 2020. And that seems like, on the face of it, uh, an interesting argument, right? Well, if people were dying at a higher rate during those two non-pandemic years and during the pandemic, well, maybe the seriousness of COVID has been exaggerated. But it, it struck me as odd why he would use those years, particularly 2003. And his numbers that he cited in the interview were pretty much accurate. But why 2003? And of course, during the, the during an interview, I couldn't just stop and say, hold on, let me check the CDC's data. I did this afterwards, but it took me you know, quite a bit of time. So when I did this, I learned that while age-adjusted mortality was slightly lower in 2020 than in 2003, it was 16.8% higher than the rate in 2019, the year the, before the pandemic started. Now, that's a much more logical comparison year than 2003, right? And in fact, 2020's rate of 835.4 was the highest in 16 years, with 2003 being the last year we actually have seen a higher age-adjusted mortality rate than we saw in 2020. Hence, I, I assume Mr. Stockman using that year, 2020. 2003. Now, in 2021, when the pandemic was still going on, but we started to get a bit of a handle on it, the mortality rate went up again, but only by 5.3%. I say only sort of in air quotes, because even that far slower rise in mortality rate represents the biggest year-on-year -year increase in age-adjusted mortality, aside from 2020, since 1936, 85 years ago. Now, the CDC has not released final mortality rate data from 2023 at this point, but their estimates have it declining by 5.33%. In other words, Mr. Stockman's argument about COVID not increasing all-cause mortality, which is key to his argument that the government dramatically overreacted to it, is built on what seems to me to be two cherry-picked data points. And when you look at those data points in context, his argument falls apart, in my view. Now, that said, he goes on to argue that many deaths classified as caused by COVID were actually not COVID deaths. And I don't have enough information to comment on that either way. But it's clear to me that Mr. Stockman's mortality number argument to support the claim that COVID wasn't all that bad, it just doesn't really wash. And given his decades of dealing with numbers at, you know, the highest level, guy was a budget director in the Reagan administration. The guy knows numbers. It's difficult for me to believe that he didn't know this as well. And I really regret that I wasn't able to bring this up with him at the time. Now, since then, I've contacted his publicist to arrange the interview uh, and asking if he might comment on this. I haven't heard back yet. But if I do hear back from Mr. Stockman, I will certainly let everyone know what he has to say. And to me, it seems this is one, uh, there's a larger lesson here. Uh, maybe it's to follow the advice of David Stockman's former boss, Ronald Reagan, who said, trust but verify. Because when I talk to anyone, if it, whether it's David Stockman or I'm having a conversation with Jay or May on the podcast, whoever, I trust that they're arguing in good faith. And when they use data, that they use it in an honest and straightforward way. But I also try to verify any claim that seems strange to me or somehow not what I would have suspected. Now, that means doing some extra work. And this took a while in this case, but I think it's important. And I think it's I hope it's time well spent, especially on issues of major national importance, which COVID certainly is. Oh, and one more thing I just wanted to mention. When I asked GPT for a chart with age adjusted mortality rates in the U.S. for the last 20 years, that's where I started. It just really quickly spit out the numbers, all of which were way off. It basically hallucinated all those numbers. So again, if you don't already know this, don't trust LLMs for anything important. Uh, you probably know this by now, but I thought it was worth reminding everyone of this, given how conveniently they give us answers that may be um, inconveniently incorrect. 
Thanks for listening to this Politics Guys interview. If you're not already a supporter of the show, I hope you'll consider becoming one because without our supporters, we wouldn't be able to do this. And when you become a supporter, you get not just that warm, fuzzy feeling knowing that you're supporting a good cause. I like to think we're a good cause, but you also get stuff like ad-free versions of everything we put out. You get our supporter-exclusive midweek show, the full length of that, not just the preview. And you also get to be part of our Discord group if you want. And there's always some interesting conversations going on there. At the $10 a month level or more, you get to actually be part of the episodes Jay and I do, if that's something you're interested in. So there's a lot of stuff is what I am saying. And I hope you'll consider checking it out. And to do that, just go to patreon.com slash politics guys. If you want to support us on Venmo, we're at politics guys. You can also support the show through PayPal and all of our support links are always in the show notes as well as at politicsguys.com slash support. And as always, I want to close with a very special thank you to our wonderful executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby.